0: Welcome to A Photographer's Life, the channel that takes you behind the curtain into the world of professional architectural photography. Join us now for an episode with some of America's premier architectural photographers. Today's broadcast comes from a recent Zoom meeting of the Association of Independent Architectural Photographers. This discussion is led by AIAP director Alan Blakely. We hope you enjoy the show. If you do please let us know by liking this episode and subscribing to this channel. Now on with the show.
1: So we want to welcome everybody to the um, March 31st uh, meeting AIP. The topic that we had uh, publicized today was medium and large format cameras. So let me just give you a little bit of background about what happened. (laughs) Um, We postponed the meeting because uh, there was some interest from a couple of manufacturers about joining the program and having their reps. And uh, I was supposed to reach out to these reps. And so I reached out to um, three different people from Fujifilm who were um, in the GFX uh, product line. And I also reached out to two individuals at Cambo and I got ghosted By all five people. (laughs) So I'm not sure what that tells me. (laughs) Um, I was hoping that we'd be able to uh, hear a little bit about, you know, what's what they're doing, what's coming down the line, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not a medium or large format user right now. And so, um, and I, I probably wouldn't be unless there was some really compelling reason. So I'm, um, there are a few other topics that we can jump into, but I just wanted to, uh, you know, we'll, we'll start this out here. Is there anybody in this group here that's using medium or large format right now? <laughs> that's interesting. And, yeah. and see, um,
2: how many missed their rb 67s <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: I mean, I missed the lenses. Uh, Me too.
2: The lenses I don't miss the
1: you know, <laughs> the film wind, <laughs> Yeah. Wind the body, crank the body, wind the back. Um, uh, oh, I don't miss that.
3: Back, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I I'm kind of surprised that the manufacturers, um, uh, didn't respond on this. I, I really thought after the email that i had sent out and calls i made that maybe we'd have a jump on that. And actually I think Martin, um, uh,
2: yeah, he's the, showing off there with his picture. Oh, he's, he's got, yeah. He's, he's got, got his company.
1: already. He's got the his his
2: medium tech. format guy.
1: Yeah. So, Gary, welcome. Martin, hi. Um, we, we just, uh, you missed it a little bit of the intro here. I was just mentioning that um, the representatives from Fuji and Cambo that were invited to join us, which were five individuals um, in total, uh, ghosted us on this. And so, um, we don't have the manufacturer trying to. Uh, pitch us on anything here. So I'm just quite, you know, interested in in understanding if there's anybody here that's using that. And I know Martin that you do. Um and it, can you just tell us what it is that
4: you do use? Yeah. So uh, I'm running a uh, Cambo wide RS okay. um, with a uh, phase one IQ four uh, 150 and have been for the last oath 3 4 years or so now mm-hmm. um on the IQ4150 i've actually I started out on a uh, on a P45 uh okay. that uh I had originally gotten um just after taking a workshop with uh, Jeffrey Jacobs and crew with uh, capture integration i think that was back in about 2012 mm-hmm. uh I could go look, but it's it, it's probably about that. And uh, before that, I was actually shooting a lot of large format film. Um, okay. On my own. So, yeah. And um, I'm just
1: curious, is, has that been an advantage to you in your clientele, um, in the market, you know, competitively? Why do you do that?
4: <laughs> I Yeah, uh, I do that. <laughs> uh, I do that for several uh, reasons. One is, uh, you know, I also run uh, Canon gear uh, with the tilt shifts and all that. But there's there's a particular look that you get um, with um, uh, with the Tech Cam lenses, and also uh, the flexibility uh, that you get on. Uh, um, uh, a tech cam platform that's actually very close to what you used to get, uh, essentially combining all of the advantages of shooting uh, large format um, on a field cam as far as, you know, uh, having having all the movements, having movements that work the way that uh, you think they should and all mm-hmm. of that, uh, and also having the advantages of uh, of shooting all digital, you know, not having to deal with film. And yeah um I mean, there are certainly a bunch of trade-offs with that not the least of which is expense uh and portability and all of that um but uh on uh, on my current platform I actually end up uh, using both the um the Schneider lenses that I've got for the cambo and also, mm-hmm uh, adapted, uh, Canon optics, uh, where okay. necessary. uh, and that actually works surprisingly well. There's a number of, of cases, for instance, in dealing with, uh, with people in short flash and if I'm, you know, having yeah. to shoot in a small space quickly and whatnot, where, uh, I end up moving on, on to the 35, but as far as, uh, for how things work for my clients, it's very rare for me to actually have somebody who asks for the resolution. Okay. Uh, I've had that happen, I think, twice in the last few years. But you know, really? you really need it. But uh, what's been really great, as far as I'm concerned, is the dynamic range uh, that you get uh, with phases, um, dual exposure uh setup. So I end up mm. having do a lot less work, a lot less futzing around with things like HDR uh, and all that for dealing with uh, situations where you have relatively wide um, dynamic range and you're not wanting to deal uh, with flash, uh, at least in the ways that you would be forced to uh, on older gear. Now, of course, one still does for compositional reasons, but I'm based in Vancouver and and a lot of things that I end up uh, photographing End up taking advantage of their views and so you end up having a lot of big glass mm. windows uh, yeah. where uh having you know enough dynamic range to actually get the job done mostly i still manage to push it at times uh but in a lot of cases uh having that uh makes your life uh in post and uh also you know in composition um a whole lot easier and a whole lot faster and that's that's really that and, Ease of handling are the two big things for me. I do end up selling the advantage of being able to crop into details um, on the images. And I have clients who make good use of that. Uh, That's less common than it used to be. Uh, And, you know, maybe I need to do a little bit of of extra client education around that. Um, But having... Having that possibility to say in in a photo of um, your background be able to uh, crop right in on that light fixture and not lose quality if you're doing uh, things like a, a small portfolio detail or you know even up to like uh, an 8 by ten or something something for your trade show, not to mention Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that is is extra flexibility. That works really well for clients, particularly when they're wanting to, you know, have have the more formally composed things, but also be able to zoom in on those details for social media uh, without necessarily um, doing that on location. So, okay. yeah, that's that's basically my two bets.
1: All right, uh, I appreciate that. Um, David's here, and I know David has uh, the Fuji um, set up, and uh, David had. Um, I'm just curious what the advantages you're seeing with the Fuji system are.
5: Yeah, well, as far as dynamic range and not have to bracket uh, my exposures, uh, the the lens is excellent quality. I haven't I I tether not tether. I use the um the iPad camera, Cam so yeah. I have, but I haven't set up the new system to go wireless to my iPad from the Fuji, so that's one thing I got to set up. Mm -hmm. But as far as the quality, yeah, it's pretty impressive, and the people that do my retouching, they're impressed with the files uh, from the Fuji, the fifty GFS GFX fifty. So so far so good, and I know they're always improving it with the updates. The one issue that I talked to the rep when he came into Portland, this a couple years ago, was putting on a uh, tilt shift lens uh, with an adapter. Right. On camera and he wasn't through the conversation, we got to the point where he says that he wouldn't recommend that yet until that's been updated. So
1: yeah, um evidently they've announced that they're gonna produce two tilt shift lenses this year. Hmm. Um, um a 30 is a 30, I believe, was uh and then there was a yeah, longer one. A 30. Is that right, Jack? Yeah.
6: Yeah, it's a 30. And yeah, I think a one one ten. Okay. Is the other one, and I've been using my uh, Canon uh, tilt shift lenses with a GFX 100S. Oh, S, okay. uh, adapted, and they they work perfectly. Okay, um, they um, you know they resolve the hundred megapixel files, mm. hundred megabyte files easily, and um, um yeah, and I, I've used Fuji for years for my personal work. Um, and I just happened to like the glass and like the, um, the JPEGs that can come out of it for personal work. But, uh, so whenever I had a chance to switch over for architectural, I, t- I took the opportunity.
1: So who who so, makes the adapter that you use for that?
6: Though? I was just looking in my notes to answer that and question. And how long have you had that
5: adapter? How many, has it been a couple of years, three years, a year that you've had that adapter?
6: I've had it for the last year.
5: Um, okay, because that makes is this, sense. Is,
2: is there a crop factor that goes with that adapter?
6: No, uh, there you is not. Put a not. twenty-four
2: on, and it's a twenty-four.
6: It's a twenty-four. Um, yeah, although the the aspect ratio of the of the medium format file is different than thirty-five millimeter, uh, but there's no reduction in you know in the size mm-hmm. of the uh, the image in any way. Um, I'm still looking for where, though. Well, that'd be great to know. <laughs> yeah.
3: Because I,
1: yeah. I, I didn't see anything. I mean, I didn't do a lot of research, but I didn't didn't really see anything um, looking around. Um, there was I'm going to
3: grab East my European camera It right <laughs>
1: looked a little sketchy, but uh, I was curious about that. I, I love the Fuji glass. I mean, years ago, I had the that old 680. Do you remember that camera? Big monster camera with the... Um,
3: oh, yeah. bellows <laughs> and
1: the lenses had Seiko shutters, they were it was, um, those were amazing cameras. Um, but uh, since then, you know, I've got the little X camera that I used, you know, in my pocket, but that's about it.
5: Um, yeah, when we shot four by five, we would use the, the Fujinon lenses, yeah, back in the day. So, uh, I definitely have confidence in the product.
1: Yeah, and that's kind just, of a different flavor than, than Schneider's or Nike's or whatever, you know. They, they've got so a really interesting look. Um,
6: so the the adapter is by Tech Art, T-E-C-H A-R-T. Huh. And it's an EF F G 01 Plus. Um, you know, I've got it sitting on my 24. Yeah. Tilt shift, and uh, you know it's the manual lens, so I don't care if it auto focuses. Right. I don't know if I don't know if it does or not, but uh, unless I could test it with another uh, R lens. But um, no, it um, it works great. There's mm-hmm. no no problem at all. Let me see if. Yeah. Thanks for that information.
1: Um. Okay. Is there any? Yeah.
6: There's no no glass in here at all.
1: Oh, so it's just okay. Just an adapter then.
6: <laughs> it's just yeah. an adapter. Wow. Yeah. Just got all the pins on both sides. Um so uh so yeah, works great. Any other
1: lenses you're using adapting to that camera?
6: Uh all of the tilt shelf lenses, so 17, 24, 45, and 90. Um
1: I was curious about the 17, what that does for you. Uh,
6: I don't use it that often. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it does strange things no matter wide, yeah. no matter what camera you hang it on. Um, so, no, I, um, uh, but it works. You know, I've, I've used it, um, and it and it works just fine. You, know, you just have to watch out. You don't get too much distortion on the side. So, you, you know, the same way if it was on a Canon camera um and and then i've got three fuji lenses uh three zooms okay that, uh, that i use um and i've I've got an architectural shoot in um annapolis that i'm going to try they a brand new uh 20 to 35 i think it is uh that's,
5: jack that's what i was going to ask you that new the new zoom that
6: they have that's a 20 yeah, to so
5: 35 there
6: yeah it's a 20 to 35 and because it's a 0.75 to get to the equivalent um 35 millimeter so it's like a 15 to a 24 okay um and you know i just i got that to see i i do landscape photography also so having something in this range is is perfect nice um but I thought I'd try it for uh, architectural work because I've got to shoot a lot of photos in a short period of time. And a manual lens and the tilt shift you know, just slows me down, which I don't mind in most cases, but I've got to get a lot done on this job in one day. Um, I,
1: I just noticed that the, this morning that there was a, a thing that came through that they, they, Fuji's dropped the price on the bodies for those cameras um, or they're dropping them. Um, I don't know what they were before. Um, so, like, the 100 is, is 49 49.99 99 now. Um, which puts it, you know, down in the range of, of the Canon and Nikon bodies. Um, I don't know. I, I, anybody ready to jump? <laughs> Brad's well, saying, I'm not, what I'm I wonder if I could afford my, it? Uh,
5: Toes in the water. But, Jack, what about... Uh, if you compare, say, shooting four by five to 35, the four by five, the depth of field, the area that you have to carry and focus, obviously, and 35s, it's more uh, liberal, so to speak, compared to now on the two and a quarter. Do you find that you have to stop down more on the Fuji uh, in your landscaping and so on to get the uh, depth of field that you want compared to 35
3: mm-hmm. on your? Absolutely.
5: Uh, you do, yeah.
6: Yeah. And, and for architectural work, I find myself, if I've got something, close in the foreground and, and further away, I end up having to do, you know, two exposures and, and focus stack. Okay. I'll um, okay. you know, just combine two images in in Photoshop. Um, but out of, you know, uh, 28 images on the last job I did, I only had to do that once, maybe twice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I got sufficient depth of field, um, but it is different. Uh, it, it absolutely is. you. You, have, you know, I'll notice when I'm zooming in on my cam ranger that <laughs> either it looks sharp up close mm-hmm. or it looks so far away and not always in Uh mm-hmm. I shoot at F8 almost all the time.
5: Now, are you shooting, uh, uh, for this one project that Justin and I work on, Justin Krug, who's also on the Zoom call, uh, one client that we have, they want us to shoot at 100 ISO. Do you, know, do you usually shoot at 100? Uh, I
6: think the native on uh gfx 100s is is 160 okay. um that's right and yeah. there's so little noise um, and, um, and, and and whatever noise is there topaz the noise gets rid of mm. uh, so uh yeah you know, I haven't had anybody say you know they they don't like they don't like how clean the files are oh I know I guess yeah. All right, and I can't think of why a client would say I wanted an ISO 100. You know, it's it's like what difference does it make what ISO I shoot it at if I give you a file you can't find any noise in. Um, You can always go back
1: and edit the metadata.
6: Oh, okay, that's true.
1: Shoot it wherever you want. Right. I would never do that, of course.
6: Oh no. (laughs) And we didn't hear you say that.
1: Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, anything else we want to talk about with regard to these?
2: I was curious when you, with your Fuji lenses, do they come with software for lens corrections since they're not tilt-shift?
6: Um, the, I mean, that's one of the really interesting things. All of the corrections are done in body. Oh. Um, hmm. So they come out perfectly corrected with the Fuji lenses. That's one of the reasons why I'll be interested in the tilt shift lens when it comes out. It'll probably be $10,000 or something ridiculous, but um, no, they come out uh, completely corrected. And uh, you don't, you know, when I import them into Lightroom, it's done. Um, I, I, you know, obviously when I'm shooting with the Canon lens, that's not the case. And, um, you know, I have to do a manual distortion correction with for that, but uh, no, they. That everything comes out mm. square as long as I'm level it's square mm-hmm. and I've seen um one youtuber uh who's he's gone in and turned off the correction to see what it looks like you know without the correction, you know, so easy. the camera's doing it for you, yeah. um, and, you know, it's just oh, yeah. magic
3: yeah
1: um just an interjection here as far as lens correction goes um i know that there are some some native things and and i know this happens on drones a lot but um I, I was speaking to um a fellow who's not really a photographer he's more of a an optician but he said that um that a lot of these cameras if you shoot in the in the jpeg plus raw mode that it will embed the correction um rather uh whereas if you shoot just in raw that you miss that correction and so um i i have noticed that i do have cameras and especially my my drone that if i shoot in that mode if i shoot in jpeg plus raw and then pull it into lightroom that it is corrected um whereas with with, with raw i was really wrestling with trying to find a correction for it in lightroom so um, I don't know if that holds true on very many or which ones specifically, but it was kind of an in- interesting discovery for me this last couple of weeks. So just thought I'd pass. I, I know that. with
6: the I know with the Fuji, it it corrects it in both the RAW and the JPEG, hmm. um, and um, you have to you have to do some magic to shut it off. Okay. Um, I don't I can't remember what the steps are because I don't really need to shut it off.
3: Mm-hmm. um
6: it, it, unless there's anything else
1: let's let's jump to something else here um another topic that dale brought up Is anybody got anything more on this medium large i'm still on the fence about it and and maybe it's because we're all old i don't know we're not
5: all old but some <laughs> of us are yeah
1: justin
7: really, yeah justin you're just a kid too yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right but, So I have a question. I don't know if you guys addressed this about medium format, but those of you who use it, rely on it compared to the 35 millimeter, besides the dynamic range, are you noticing other qualities in the images that you can identify as being characteristic of medium format, something special, just about the look of the photographs or the files?
6: Um, Low noise, good color. Of course, I like Canon color too um the um and there was mention of cropping the ability to crop in um and i've done that you know numerous times where a client wanted something shot with an aspect ratio for an iphone for instagram and um mm. uh, so i was able to crop in and you know give them incredible <laughs> uh detail like you know just go down to like a tenth of the size of the image and it was still sharp um uh, yeah, the medium has a little different look. I, I you know, they're they're both good. Um, for me, I, as I said, I like the colors. I like I like the way the the Fuji XT three did things, does things, um, and uh, it, it's the same with uh, same with the uh, the medium format. Yeah, uh, we talked about back in the day.
5: You uh, compare four by five to I say 35 on the same shot and medium formats, the same case, the bigger the sensor or the bigger the film, it's hard to describe until you side-by-side, you get more depth, you get more of a three-dimensional look when Mm -hmm. you shoot with a larger sensor compared Mm -hmm. to a smaller sensor. And Jack, I'm sure you can see that in your landscaping and your architecture when you're using the Fuji. I noticed that big time. And when I used to use the Hasselblad shooting film, Again, side by side, when you look at through these architectural magazines, El Decor, uh, architectural digest, you could tell, I can tell, besides the aspect ratio and the cropping, um, what shot medium format, what shot 35. But you almost have to have a trained eye and you have to look side by side for to really pick it up. But that's my mm-hmm.
6: another positive with the medium format. Mm. And whether that's worth, you know. or whatever it costs to, to converge, you know, is, is a personal business decision. Um, and, uh, I I can't argue with the fact that, you know, you're using 10 year old equipment and producing stellar work, you know, the clients love and you don't have to invest any additional money. I mean, that that makes great business sense. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, there is, uh, as Norman mentioned, or as, um, sorry, uh, as David mentioned, uh, there is you know that that medium format look and I uh those of us who shoot medium format do absolutely notice it and it's hard to quantify exactly what goes into it. um but you know, one thing that I end up noticing it actually using a lot. and I think this may be a phase specific thing these days, although Canon seems to have have grabbed it is, Uh, the ability to um, do uh, in-camera frame averaging, uh, which I tend to pull out if I'm dealing with traffic and all that sort of stuff. You can do similar things uh, using post and or neutral density. Mm -hmm. Having the ability to do that in a couple of clicks is super useful, uh, particularly if you're in situations where... You really want to not be jostling uh, the camera for putting your filters on and off and whatnot. Um, that's a fun one. Hmm. Interesting.
6: And that's that's particular to phase one, right? Yeah. I've seen people do that. It, it, it's great, but whatever, $40,000 for the camera?
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things that... Um, that's actually worth noting is uh, if you're if you're looking at going uh, to phase in particular, and I'm not sure whether Fuji works the same way, but uh, work with a good dealer uh, because uh, you end up uh, they they have uh, a good uh, certified um, pre-owned. um set up as well as a lot of uh, older lenses that happen to work great. So mm. uh, because the gear lasts uh, for so long and you have outside of uh, the shutters on the lenses relatively few moving parts. Um, sure, having to buy new is uh, is expensive, but there's usually ways uh, to do that. And, you know I work with uh, B3k digital up here uh in canada uh and they've been fantastic Uh, local dealers wherever you are will also do similar things and you know uh do not trust this uh the online sticker prices uh for phase um and cambo gear uh there's ways to get in for less i did and i think most other people who do it have as well
1: Mm. good to know thanks martin i appreciate that um Let's let's jump um, subjects here. And, and Dale um, brought up a, a question about dealing with LED lights. And uh, Dale, kind of let you explain maybe what what the uh, circumstances are that you're talking about.
3: Yeah, as, as I've mentioned before, I, I do a lot of institutional work, a lot of schools and uh, uh, police stations, fire stations, water districts, and so forth. And they've all switched over to LED lighting, and I've noticed that I'm getting a lot of uh, flare and glare from LED lights. I don't know if anybody else has had that issue, and I was curious as to what the solution is because I'm doing a lot of post-editing trying to get rid of it and uh, make it a little sharper.
5: Is there is there a particular lens where that flutter is happening? Is it with your 17 or a different your wider yeah, lens? Yeah, it's,
3: and it's obviously with wider angle lenses. Yeah. You'll you'll grab it, and I just wondered if if uh, a polarizing film or something would help. But I didn't know.
5: Now, I've had that. You got to be obviously be real careful when you're in a hurry or uh, setting up. You got to really examine those top corners of the of that flutter coming in, and you just have a flag or whatever. Um, Squim that off,
3: yeah.
2: yeah. Dale, are you shooting brackets or with lights? What's that? Are you shooting with brackets or are you shooting with lights? I'm shooting brackets. Yeah, I I haven't had that problem shooting brackets. I mean, I shoot a lot of uh, commercial spaces as well. The same thing, uh, LED lighting, and they come out. I mean, I can see the rim on all the lay-in fixtures. They come out really clean, so i'm shooting sony though i'm not shooting the canon 17 but that that lens actually has a pretty decent re- reputation so i don't know what the um I mean,
3: think I, you, I, I you shoot tell your...
2: i shoot at iso uh 100 too i mean <laughs> i don't know if that makes a uh, help i always do so
3: yeah I, I shoot at 100 as much as i can because i've got people moving or something
2: yeah. dale can you post
7: the, share the screen i don't know if you feel comfortable just showing an example that might be helpful sure yeah well while he's doing that i just i, I run really into that
1: a lot because i i do a lot of uh commercial buildings as well like fire stations and and things like that that have the big leds way up in the ceiling and um uh, i just shot a prison a while back and had the same problem with it and um you do get a lot of flare from those no matter what you do and i I have a an arm with a flag that I have all the time on my tripod and uh, even if you flag those and I've, I've tried polarizing and I've tried, um, you know, putting a, a grad filter on to try to knock that down a little bit and I find that I have to fix them all in post because um, I haven't found a solution, you know, in camera to, to take care of that, but sorry, Dale, go ahead.
3: <laughs> well I, yeah i again i in some cases worse than others uh uh usually you know like a, like it's a huge space i tend to get it more on the bigger space than the smaller spaces mm mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I end up shooting for a lot of uh folks uh who do lighting design so we end up having to show the fixture as well as as the space which is always fun. Ooh. And um I end up actually uh using luminos- luminosity masking uh for that. So um I end up with that problem all the time. Uh there's sort of there's two issues that I run into a lot. One of them is, of course, uh, having um, having flare, and that's you know flags, screens, compendium shades, that sort of stuff can take care of mostly. But also, there's there's the flare that you have on the light itself, yeah. And arguably, uh, shooting at a lower aperture and a shorter exposure. And in some cases, knock that down. I've found, you know, since I'm already, you know, at at f on the medium format gear, that 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 doesn't really do it for me. But I've I've got folks who, uh, who do work uh, in 35 who uh, will explicitly shoot a bracket at a wider aperture uh, to take care of that. But I usually find that uh, if I do uh, a bracket where I'm uh, properly exposing. Uh, the lit part of uh, the fixture, and then use that um, as a luminosity mask. Then that will tend to preserve the lights coming out of the fixture and make uh, make doing the rest of, of of your post for that way easier.
3: Thanks.
1: Good tip on that. Um One of the things too, I found that it, it there's different fixtures have kind of a different. Um, luminosity range <laughs> that's where that flare occurs it's not always a highlight um uh, it, sometimes it's a mid-range flare and uh so it varies from fixture to fixture and you know thankfully that there's not such variety in uh, leds as there used to be but um it's it's still kind of an issue
5: um alan, any other thoughts alan, on that yeah alan what do you use for your flag uh you know your flag over your your lands. I I have a piece
1: that? of black black foam core.
5: It's got your logo on it. Yeah. No,
1: it's just black, <laughs> and it's got gaffer tape on it occasionally if it gets crunched by TSA. Um, but you know i I have a, a Manfrotto tripod that's got the little socket for accessory stuff, and I, and so then I've got the uh, the articulated arm. With the little mini clamp on it, and and then I have the flag there, and the flag's 11 by 14, and so I can usually fuss that into place wherever I need to, and and you know, it's kind of like you know four by five. I used to just have a little mirror that I stick around front and then adjust the flag so that I could um, see where the highlights were and get rid of them that way, Um, and that tends to work pretty well. But um, to Martin's point. Uh, if I'm at F-16, I can count on just crazy flare from uh, those fixtures. And so uh, a separate exposure for the ceiling, uh, uh, you know, at, at F-8 maybe or something like that makes a huge difference in, in what that flare looks like. Uh, at F-8, it's more spread out. At F-16, I get like I've got a star filter
3: on or something. Right,
2: so, yeah. Ellen, yeah. Are you shooting that 24 tilt cannon? yeah hmm f-16 yeah isn't that doesn't it soften at f-16 i think f-8 is the sharp point in that
1: yeah that is the sweet spot um I, I need the depth of field and so when i in post-production when i'm running that through uh through the topaz filters yeah um i can get that back yeah um that's not the sharpest aperture i don't ever shoot at 22 with that um, lens, F11 would be preferable, but there, occasionally, you know, if I've got a big space, I have to stop down. Um, Brad, you look like you got something to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just wondering if you're still with us. <laughs> uh, Brad's kind of holding back you. because he knows way more than I do about anything. <laughs> um yeah, that that that's a that's a kind of a trouble thing. Is there anybody else that's shooting for lighting companies here? Um, yeah, I mean that's just a crazy difficult thing.
2: Yeah, I, I do um we do product photography, so we'll bring it. Um, sometimes we'll bring the fixtures in the studio here, and mm. we'll shoot that for there. And then we'll when we're doing application shots, of course it's just architectural, but yeah, and when it's a lighting company, um, it's usually warehouse lighting. So oh. I, I never, you know, obviously you can't light that. So I'm always shooting brackets, but I, I haven't had the the problem that, that Dale's talking about, you know, not, not consistently anyway, not, you know, so you know, but with brackets, I'm seeing, I seem to be able to manage it.
1: Yeah, when those are product specific kind of shots, then I think you can get away with that wider aperture. And, um, but yeah, but and if you're so shooting you know, the space, you know, then you're in trouble. So um, Barry, you're unusually quiet today as well, but (laughs) he's on the West Coast.
2: (laughs) Has he been put in a corner or something?
1: All I've got is jokes.
8: Okay. (laughs) I was going to say that, uh, you know, you could tell people regarding flare that that's a feature, not a bug. It's very cinematic. There you go.
1: They may not buy it, but it's a special filter. Okay, so I wanted to to jump into one uh, another thing here. and um, I, I know we've kind of beat this infringement thing to death, but um, I, I'm just kind of curious where everybody is um, as far as handling infringements. and um, maybe maybe the things you're doing that are making life easier for you if you are going after infringements, because uh, I was kind of whining to Norman this morning before we came on about...
2: Um... <laughs> I was whining to oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> but um,
1: it, are, are there some business practices that uh, that we might want to share with one another that uh, might make this whole infringement process a little easier to bear? Any thoughts? Yeah, Norman.
2: I, I had a... I actually... Um had an intellectual property attorney call me, <laughs> I mean, it was um, from Utah, and they wanted to handle They They wanted to know if, if if they could handle our infringement cases, I said, what makes you think I have any, because all <laughs> professional photographers have some. So uh, I don't know how they got my number of contact, but they have the same basic software that Pixie does. Mm. And, um, and I was thinking, because I've I've had a lot of I like what Pixie's done. I've been you know they they've done you know they've made a lot of money, but they um I, I've also heard some uh, complaints from my clients and the people they work with with the way Pixie uh, dialogues with them and the correspondence back and forth. It's been kind of um, I don't know what the word is to use. Uh, they've had been
6: serial. <laughs> <Yeah, I> <laughs>
2: Yeah, that one. I, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, but, um, so I'm I'm interested in finding uh, a softer, I wish Pixie would have a softer approach, uh, a, a more professional approach, I guess. I, I don't see any reason to be unkind with somebody. If you, you know, it, 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 I just don't get it. But the um, this last month, I've, I've had uh, several architects call us that work with some of our bigger clients um, who have ended up with an image from, you know, whatever... And and the um, you know and it's really it's been embarrassing for my client, so I'm I'm starting to be concerned about is Pixie is Pixie helping me or is it going to be hurting me in the back end with relations with my relationship with my good clients? So I, I'm I'm kind of exploring other avenues, maybe uh, you know talking one on one with an attorney and the and the correspondence. I, I've also noticed, uh, Alan, the correspondence that pixie sense to clients uh, about an impri- infringement the, the wording I, I don't care for some of it and you know, yeah it's uh,
1: it's a it's a little it's a little rough i think
2: it's it's very rough and there are you know because i may want to work with these people in the future i wouldn't i don't want to burn a bridge completely but but i think that's that's been happening in some cases
7: has anyone noticed that the uh, rate of success with Pixie has been declining in terms of the resolved cases or the monetary damages that are uh, that have been awarded? Because I have several cases that are outstanding that they've communicated with the infringing party and received no response. And so they're not now they're going to phone calls.
1: Yeah. So, and that's kind of part of the process, I think. Yeah. I mean, and then you know at, at, at after the phone calls, then they turn it over to legal, and then it then it gets some teeth in it, and um if you've got it registered then then the return is is even greater but at least that's that's been my experience Norman, yeah, I cut you off, there's, sorry. <laughs> there's a
2: lot there's a lot that yeah I don't want to speak. There's a lot that pixie leaves on the table. I've sent uh, a whole folder of stuff over to uh, that pixie has, you know, said they've done all they can do and there's been no response. And, and I've looked at the particular infringement and I have no love for these people. So I sent it to an attorney myself and, you know, I'm approaching it that way.
1: On the front end of things, when you, when you invoice something, um, are there any of you that are making your your client, you know, your your primary client aware of, um, you know, multi-party licensing and and things like that and and what the possibilities are? And, yeah. um, and how do you do that? I mean, what is, is that some a conversation that's, yeah. you know, that's right before the photo shoot or after or when you bill or where does that come? Yeah.
2: I make you know it out I, of the conversation when um, when someone calls and say I have a project to shoot, I ask if there's somebody else that you know, wants to participate, because all the people I work with are pretty familiar with multi-party licensing and the benefits, so we try to bring in, you know, if it's a builder, a designer, or an architect, um, even a painter um, has, has been able to, to come in, so it's it worked out really nice. I,
8: I yeah, find I, I, have to, I have to explain it multiple times do it verbally. A couple times, I I have two kind of template uh, that I send as an email. If people are not already familiar with it, it, it seems to break their brain. I, it's the oddest thing for me. Um, and I keep stressing, save money. You save money. You pay less. You pay lots less if you do this up front. And uh, it's astonishing to me how difficult it is to get that across to people. So but, you you know, the trick is, of course, you don't want people to feel stupid because then they won't hire you. So um, it's a matter of just uh, gently going at it again in, from different directions. That's been my strategy.
6: And as soon as I get a request for a job, the next question is who might also be interested in licensing these photos? Oh, okay. uh, and my terms and conditions say this license is not transferable, Thanks. any usage by a party other than client must be by separate license with Jack Sigan Photography um, and it's you know no you're you can't give this away yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that seems to work um, you know ex- except some people pass it on anyway and that's what Pixie comes in. When
3: I've, you guys, I've, <laughs> done oh, I've, I've done it.
9: I've done it My entire career, and I I can't, I can almost not think of a shoot that I've done in a long, long time that there isn't at least two, three, four, five, six parties sharing the cost. Mm -hmm. Um, Of what charge? Yeah. I
1: mean, how do you, one of the things that I run into a lot is uh, when someone is in in violation and has infringed um something the first question they ask me is well what do you mean i don't own the photograph and uh, <laughs> um i'm i'm always kind of stumped because it really stops me Is like i don't think i ever said you did but um that that seems to be the first question i get from people infringing is what do you mean i don't own the photograph or you know those that have passed it off to other people and and like Barry said, I've I explained it multiple times during the process, and and I'm still stumped by um, the fact that people think they own the photographs. So I don't know.
9: And he I, said, I, I, I gave up a client <clears throat> uh, who wanted to, he basically said, I want the copyright, and yeah. I said, you're not getting the copyright, And he went on to say that, uh, you know, that he owned all the pictures from his wedding and I told him he probably didn't and didn't have the copyright to, I said, I really doubt that your, uh, wedding photographer, uh, turned over, I mean, filed and turned over the copyright to you for your wedding. And, uh, I mean, I I think it was very simple that his attorneys told him he should acquire the copyright, and I simply said mm. that wasn't going to happen. And uh, I said, "You've got all the rights to use the images however you want. Why do you need the copyright?" And he said, "Because I want it." And mm. uh, okay, <laughs> well, I, the,
8: what I run into, and and I probably said this before, I. Some of you know I teach business practices, and I use Facebook as a great research tool to see what uh, pain points there are, particularly for emerging photographers. And, you know, the word buyout comes out all the time, and I'm always explaining that buyout is, for one thing, not a legal term of art. <clears throat> and when that word gets used, photographers hear uh, copyright transfer uh, and so that's not accurate either. When clients use it, they're usually just looking for broad rights. So when I run into, I actually run into people like Brad's run into, and uh, those those uh, relationships don't go forward to, to a paycheck. Uh, however, you know, the rest of the time I just say, well, what do you really need them for? I don't, some people get very aggressive and they, they say, well, ask them if they're going to put an ad on the side of a bus. You know, I I don't feel that's a strong negotiating strategy to make people feel uh, belittled. So I just say, uh, you know, what do you think you're going to use it for? And then I just stick all that in the contract or the proposal. Mm. Uh, I never use the word buyout or copyright transfer. If people really keep pushing on that word copyright transfer, I say, well, you know, that requires an actual signature to transfer the copyright. And I say, I just put in... The broad usage. And I had one client come back to me and say, oh, this is great. This is somebody who'd asked for buyout and copyright transfer both. And uh, she said, oh, this is great. And we understand we don't we can't license this to any third parties. So I thought, wow, I've, I did good this time. You know? <laughs> but that's just um, it's a misunderstanding. I think it's very it's it's not just young people uh, on the on the, the copy left, you know, who think everybody should own everything or nobody should own anything uh, as the case may be. Uh, so anyway, that's been my sort of strategy, such as it is. And, uh, and that's what I suggest to people. And it seems to work most of the time, but you are always gonna get people that just don't get it. And, and they're aggressive and their are attorneys are not IP attorneys, I don't understand either, so.
1: That's great advice, um, I've never taken that tack before. But, um, it, it, do any of you actually transfer copyright? Does that ever happen?
2: There's not enough money. <laughs>
8: I, I did it once I have ethics <laughs> i uh I had an architect client that had worked for Disney for fifteen years and they designed the Marvel uh studios not for shooting movies but for 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 post. so there were these buildings on the Disney lot and um, the movie business you're always gonna almost always going to be work for hire anyway. Mm. And so, and Disney has a particular reputation for being the most corporate, excuse me, the most brutal corporate environment. Yeah. Uh, it's always been that way. So after 15 years, they finally been allowed to to uh, bring in a photographer to shoot these uh, post studios. And uh, I had to sign away my copyright uh, before I was allowed to bid on the job. Oh, wow. Which I did, well, yeah. But I knew it was going to be work for hire because that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were at least going to be able to use the photos, but uh, uh, for marketing purposes, although there was nothing in there for me to show, um, but uh, I got the job and Disney was happy and then they asked me to come back and they said, what's your price? And I gave them a pretty decent price and they said, no, no, that's too much money. So I never got that. Job. Disney. <laughs> that's Disney.
9: Squeeze I've, every
1: penny. You're taking
8: it I've, in. I've done
9: it, I've done it once. I mean, I I will say, I don't sell my copyright. I'm very definitive about not selling my copyright. Uh, The only time I sold my copyright is I do all of the airport lounges for American Express. Hmm. American Express wanted the copyright, and they are paying handsomely for the copyright.
1: Yeah, I've got a client who's also airport related and um, they're a security company and it's just part of the deal. Um, and they do pay for it. So um, my my fee is is considerably greater um, um, than it normally would be. And, and to me, that's okay. And I, I wouldn't really have, I don't know that there'd be anybody it would have use for those images besides the company that's paying me. So um, it, there are those rare occasions that that happens.
9: I mean, that's my situation with Amex is mm-hmm. there's, there's nobody who would want to use them other than Amex. They're paying me uh, handsomely for that. Right. And they're also not restricting me that I can have the images on my website in my portfolio. Um, so it it's, uh i suppose it's a win-win but i it is my one exception
8: yeah well, that's key isn't it i mean i think a lot of people don't understand that you can you can license uh, you can sign away your copyright but you can still put a clause in a contract that says i could use them for myself uh promotion and so forth and
2: yeah yeah i, I, made, uh, I made that does... mistake one time i gave a it was just this uh, cover band, this Beatles cover band in Chicago, and um, we went to see them. They were really good. My kids loved them, so I, Mary Beth, and I we brought them to the studio, did a nice photo shoot for them to help them out. Met Louise Harrison. It was all fun. Um, so I felt, you know, they had, they were, they were like busted, had nothing, and I gave them a license to go ahead and use the images any way they want. So I'm driving through Missouri one day. <laughs> And there's this billboard. I'm like, oh, I used to take I took a picture just like that, you know. <laughs> um, but they used them everywhere, and they became very successful. And they forgot all about me, of course. But <laughs>
3: uh, it's
7: an interesting dilemma. So go ahead, Darryl. Um, I have a question about, you talked about multi-party licensing. And the traditional way I think of that is um, You license the same set of images to each client. You add a discount to your original commissioning clients or you add a percentage of your original commissioning clients invoice. uh, And then you split that between the multiple parties. Just wondering if that's how people are doing the cost sharing. Because I would think like a painter might only want a few or a handful of images compared to say an architect or a builder. Um, So I'm just curious
6: what you've described is what I do if they sign up before the shoot. If they only want one or two images, then they pay a higher per image fee after the shoot. Um, and, um, and, and then the people who were involved beforehand don't really get any financial benefit from that post-shoot arrangement. Yeah. Um,
1: I think that's the way a lot of us are working. That um, that it's it's kind of a, a front end thing where you you get the discount on the front end and and you don't do it on the back end at all. And I've had I've had builders who have come to me and when I've licensed stuff to a maybe an interior designer a year or two later and they want to have me credit them back money and no that doesn't ever happen. <laughs> so.
4: Yeah, we actually do the back-end thing as well, and it's pretty much an automatic process. So um, that's that's basically running on top of our CRM system. So when somebody, after the fact, comes in and wants to uh, wants to license something, if it's something that we haven't already credited back, uh, we'll give them a small credit on their next project. It uh, works pretty well for loyalty.
1: Interesting. I just, uh, uh, to me, it's once the once the jobs build, that's it, and there's no more discounts to be had after that. But, and I bill anybody wants an image after that, a painter or whoever. It's it's my normal licensing rates and you know, my one-off rates.
2: That's the way I do it.
1: Yeah, I just don't have the capacity to for the accounting. <laughs> <laughs> on that, my, my right brain dominance has not allowed me to understand how to do that well. But, uh, anyway, um, gentlemen, um, we're kind of at the end of the hour here. Is there anything else that uh, anybody would like to bring up before we sign off here?
8: Well, there's always AI. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so here's my take on AI. And, and uh, this obviously could be in a whole other hour, is <laughs> is a lot of people don't understand that we're essentially photographers that, that at least are shooting digital and do their own posts, which I assume is all of us mm. or most of us. Uh, we're already using AI. I mean, Topaz is all AI. And, yeah. uh, and the healing uh, tool in Photoshop is AI so it's not new as far as that goes and I'm, I'm less concerned about losing work to um even the i mean renderings are ai um mm-hmm. architectural renderings and they still don't look as good as a a, a proper photographer can make them look so people that are going to use renderings you can see that on the architects website they're still using them you know uh, if they don't see the value in a photographer that's, there's not much we can do about it. Um,
9: yeah, I, I saw a comment, um, uh, today that was saying, you know, people thought renderings were going to take the place of photography and they haven't. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I think there will continue to be value in what we bring to the profession. Um, I, I think there's probably, you know, some people who will lose out invariably but ultimately uh, i think a trained eye is still something of value that won't
6: quickly be replaced and there are clients of our clients who want to see as built not as designed yeah Uh, you know how did it actually get done uh and they don't trust the render as you know well you know what actually happened when they tried to build that damn thing uh,
1: <laughs> good point yeah, I, I, I think there's still they
6: ran out of money yeah <laughs>
8: exactly
1: <laughs> still value in a photographer's eye and and knowing how to set up a shot it's but you know i, I want to cover some, some of this in another meeting i think we really ought to and
2: uh I, I, I have one final comment here. Yeah. Alan started earlier today. He said that we're all old.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about have that.
2: You? No, no, it didn't hurt my feelings. <laughs> we're all about the same age. You know? Has anybody noticed that, um, and, and I actually had a client say this to me, all the good photographers came from film. You know, yeah. the, the new guys, you know, their work is, I mean, some of it's Okay but it's not polished it's not i wouldn't call it you know high end photography in any and, and i've been thinking about that i think that that's true any any photographer today that has any talent or that's in demand they came from film i mean i, I know all of you guys did i, I think there's
1: going to be a gift in the go, industry go I'm sorry go ahead sorry Brad
9: oh i was just going to say i had an art director say that that exact thing to me and and i think what it comes from it's not only film but it's it's a vision Mm -hmm. that you, you have to be able to walk the project, see, see the shots, Mm -hmm. know what the end product's going to be. And if you started in film and you dealt with color correction, putting magenta filters in fluorescent lights and all those types of things, you have an idea of what your end product's going to be and what I've heard people say is uh, people who never shot in film, whatever comes up on the back of the screen, they think that's that's right because they don't have any kind of ground from which to work from. Whereas anybody who shot film knew all the trials and tribulations to get it to what you wanted it to be. And therefore you had to have enough vision to uh, know what the end product was.
2: Yeah, well said, Brad.
1: Excellent point. Yeah, I, 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 when, I when I have a, a younger photographer around on a shoot, um, invariably I get the question, well, how do you know where to set up the shot? <laughs> um, and, and I know that they're taking a hundred shots because they don't really, you know, they don't see it in here first. And you really do need to see it in, in, in your head. And I mean, it's just like music, You uh, people that are, you know, jazz musicians, people will ask, well, how do you know, well, how do you know what to play? Well, you got to hear it in here first. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and uh, it's kind of the same situation. And I just think there's going to be a big shift in the industry when all of us decide we've had enough. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not sure. What the you know what the younger uh, photographers are are capable of, quite honestly, because uh, you know, like Norman was saying, and, and Brad, it's it's about what they see on the back of the camera um, that yes, determines what the shot is.
2: Yeah, I, I was on a shoot, uh, Alan, with another photographer. I was working with a designer. He, he was working for the architect, and and I mean, he he must have shot three hundred images. I mean, he just. Each is firing away. In some points, he took the camera off the tripod. And he's, oh yeah, and, I mean it's. Uh, yeah. Okay, I also
6: oh, think, I, see that all the time. I think, but I think to Brad's point, it's a vision thing because yeah. I've seen younger photographers who know what the final photograph is going to look like, and they take the shots digitally to make sure they have all the components they need to put it together uh in in post and and their age isn't as important as the ability to visualize that final product uh, yeah they don't make have sure any you have businesses. all the pieces
2: yeah uh, uh, are hard, they're hard to I, come by
8: i also wonder if it's not also um a lack of interest in the history of the trade mm. you know i think that some people think that um you know, uh, architectural photography sort of stopped in 1960 is becoming really interesting. They're not aware of Ezra Stoller, for instance, or, or I mean, any, any contemporary photographers as well. And um, that they're just not looking at photos. I mean, the way I learned to take photos was by looking at photos. Um, yeah. I I, I write also the way I learned to write was by reading, you know, it's not that complicated. There you go. And, uh, you know, you tell people there are actually books about architectural photography, uh, Norman McGrath, and and now there's several more and so forth. I mean, um, but, but more than that, just looking at magazines and there are fewer magazines and sometimes what you see on, on a screen is, is not going to convey
1: the quality that you need that's in
3: print.
8: <laughs> oh, I got to copy that.
1: Yeah. Norman. Norman. I think most of us have that kind of stuff in our libraries. Um, yeah. yeah that, um, I think you're, you're right on there because I don't, I don't see too many people that are coming into the business who have the vocabulary of, of architectural photography that comes from, yeah. <laughs> yeah seeing stuff <laughs> like. Like we're showing here, that that even know who these photographers are. Um,
3: there's there's yeah, a good documentary the, on Julius Shulman too. Yeah, if you want.
1: Well,
8: and that. the and the thing about Julius, who you know I met, and he was a lovely guy. Uh, and I'm I'm only going to say this now because he's dead and this is getting <laughs> recorded. Is you know, his work stopped innovating around 1960. And so I think some people look at that and they think about the stall House, the famous picture with the two women sitting in a glass house overlooking. That that's it. That's the that's the standard. And there were people doing Ezra Stoller or or a guy in L.A. Marvin Rand or Mar, uh, Ted yeah Marvin Rand um, who were just um, at the same generation or a little after who were doing who continued to innovate not for the sake of innovating but because the tools got better, and the art direction got better, and the uh, in in publication terms that they were looking for more interesting photos. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, Julius did nice work. There's no question about that, but he kind of stopped at a certain point. And I mean, I know that he shot film all the way through the end, even when he was in his 90s and his career kind of came back. He he had an assistant that would lug around his four by five, so he. I I was with a photographer. Decided to tweak him and and mention digital. And I thought it, we're going to cause a heart attack. we going <laughs> to finally kill this guy. And uh, he just he couldn't handle it. So I'm sorry. I've I've no Barry. I, I'm I, gossiping now.
9: <laughs> I agree with you entirely. I, I I couldn't agree with you more. And even going back full circle to the beginning of our conversation. I mean, I shot large format for 17 years and then went to medium format and shot medium format because I didn't think 35 millimeter was where it needed to be. And then when 35 millimeter was where I felt it needed to be and was a jumping off point, um, that's when I gave up my medium format. And in all truthfulness, it it gets also back to vision. Uh, When I was shooting four by five, or even early medium format, um, we weren't shooting architecture with people in those spaces. Yeah, and and now that has evolved, and I just know the things I can do with 35 millimeter and people in spaces that, uh, quite frankly, became quite uh, far too difficult to do with medium format. So. Um, You know, when I'm sitting there and I'm seeing Iwin Bond and Fernando Gallera, Emma Peters, all shooting 35 millimeter digital, um, I just couldn't see the reason to continue to carry around $70,000 worth of medium format gear. Um, You
8: know, also along those lines, what I think, uh, and also just to digress, that the one thing that Julius did do that was radical was put people in the photographs. Not, I think in the way that we often do it, they were very posed, so forth, but that that's irrelevant. Um, the thing that I've noticed also is that landscape architects really like having people much more than regular architects for doing interiors. I mean, they kind of expect it for the scale. And I'm again, I'm not sure that um, how many emerging photographers are, are hip to that. Um, that that's a re- kind of a requirement um, for for that kind of work, at least on, on the part of the uh, landscape architects. So it's just a matter of understanding the culture as much as looking at uh, images out there. You know,
1: appreciate all those comments. That uh, yeah, really important insights, and uh, I thank you for that. I, I know that the listeners. On this podcast once it gets on the podcast platforms you're gonna really appreciate that some will disagree heartily, but <laughs> well, they I can
8: appreciate- find me and complain directly <laughs>
2: <laughs> i still have some astia in the refrigerator just so you know.
1: <laughs> yeah um well thanks to everyone this has been uh, a great discussion we'll do this again next month i hope you're all busy um the ones i've talked with individually it sounds like you are and uh, the market's still great. Uh, I- I'm, I'm glad that our industry's not been killed by the um, changes in the economy. And uh, wish you all the best this spring. Hope you all survive. And uh, we'll talk again next month. <laughs> Thanks to everyone.
3: Okay. Thanks.
0: This has been another episode of A Photographer's Life. If you've enjoyed this program, Please let us know by liking this episode and subscribing to this channel. A Photographer's Life is brought to you by the Association of Independent Architectural Photographers. This episode is copyrighted, and may not be used in full or in part, without the written permission of the AIAP. Please join us again soon for another inside look at the world of professional architectural photography.